right, welcome back to another episode of Shifting Schools. So excited to continue with our STEM mini-series uh, that we've been going on all here to start second semester, start the new year, all focused on STEM. Uh, we're really excited that today we get to talk with Jen Christensen, who is the author of the book, Building Science Graphics, an Illustrated Guide to Communicating Science Through Diagrams and Visualizations. And Trisha being Trisha. Hi, Trisha. How are you today? Hi, Jeff. How are you? Trisha being Trisha had to go out and cyber stalk everybody on Twitter. We all know she spends way too much time on Twitter. And you actually got a pre published edition of the book to review for today's interview. Talk a little bit about the book and a little bit about Jen. Sure. So yes, I've been following uh, Jen Christensen, the the author. She is the senior graphics editor at Scientific American, where she art directs and produces illustrated information graphics and data visualizations. She began her publishing career in New York at Scientific American back in 1996. Um, she moved to Washington, D.C. to join the art department of National Geographic, spent four years as a freelance science communicator, then returned to Scientific American, where she works today. So when I found out that Jen had this upcoming book, um, you know, I begged and pleaded to get a little bit of a, a sneak preview because knowing the work that she's done with Scientific American, I was thinking this is going to be such a great resource for anybody in education who's interested, of course, in science but also educators who work in the world of design, also thinking about ELA teachers and thinking about communication, what it means to be a skillful communicator in today's world where, again, Jeff, you know, like our attention is constantly torn in so many different directions. So I knew this book was going to be useful to so many different types of teachers. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, I've worked with teachers who have, have taught sort of the art and craft of infographics. This book is for those folks, um, absolutely one for you to order and add to your professional development library. What are some things that you think uh, today's audience should be looking out for in this conversation with Jen? So I think one of the first things, and this is something that we've we've touched on a lot lately, I feel like with a lot of our uh, guests, but again, we're coming back to this intersection between art and subject matters. In today's case, we're talking about art and science, right? The visualization of science, the visualization of science facts, but how important art is playing a role in that. And I think one of the things that we have to constantly remember as educators is right now we are living in a very visual world. We consume more visuals, whether that be images or video, than we do text. How are we supporting students in the future of work when visuals are really important? If you're an ELA teacher, how are you bringing visuals? How are you having kids draw? And, and, and one of the things I love is, is we talk about online and offline, where it doesn't all have to be digital art. I think some of it needs to be as, you know, you create graphics, you're getting into Excel. How do you make sure that, you know, if you're in Excel or Google Sheets, that those graphics are telling the story of the data that you want it, you want to convey to your audience? And again, I think, you know, are we reaching out to our art teachers and are we having, you know, overlaps of art and science and art and math? And, and those really play a role. And I think that is, that's something that for all of us to remember and be thinking about where in my curriculum, where in my classroom, am I intentionally having an intersection between art and my subject matter? 
So that's that's my first kind of takeaway from today. How about you? A big one for me is, you know, and this reminds me of an earlier episode that we did, Jeff, that's episode 226, Turning Data into Visual Stories with Gabri- Gabrielle Marit. Um, it reminds me of that because today's guest also talks about some of the behind the scenes work, mm-hmm. right? Because I think sometimes, again, if you went to Scientific American and you're looking at some of the work that Jen Christensen does, I think it's easy for teachers and students to fall into the trap of, well, this person is just so talented at that, right? Um, And Jen does a really good job of kind of taking us behind the curtain and talking about her work process. And she goes into detail in this episode about color coding as a strategy, right? And again, I think that's useful whenever we're processing information, have strategies, right? It's not just tell me what the most important part of this article is, right? It's really take students through step-by-step how do we do analysis? What does analysis look like? Um, you know, I, I think that's so important that we're giving students a whole range of different approaches when we're asking them to do research. Uh, what else, Jeff? What else are you thinking is, uh, again, really important from this conversation? Well, I think there's two times in today's episode that Jen starts to talk about the power of feedback. And I love it because, you know, people aren't going to be able to see it unless we turn it into a, a TikTok clip or something. But she's talking about feedback and asking for specific feedback. And Trisha, both of you and I are just smiling like, yes, we've talked about this a lot, right? This idea that you just don't, you know, send somebody something and say, hey, can you give me some feedback on this? That when you are asking for feedback, you're asking for specific feedback. And every time we have this conversation with professionals, I go back and I, all I keep thinking about is as an educator, when I have students who are handing in assignments, as part of that, am I asking them, can you attach a piece of paper or write a note to me? What feedback do you want on this? We know that as humans, we can't take all the feedback that we get. At most, you can take back three pieces of feedback. So what are, what are the pieces of feedback you really want me to focus on? What are you, as a learner, as somebody who's making a graphic, what is it you really want me to focus in on feedback? And circling all the misspelled words isn't feedback. <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking about real feedback here. And how many times do we actually ask our learners, hey, what feedback would be most important to you right now, right where you're at as a learner on this piece? And then me as an educator, being able to look past all the misspellings because that's not what they asked me to focus on, but to focus in on topic sentences or to focus on the data that I gathered or to focus on, you know, the colors that I used. I think it's so important. And she does a great job again of just showing how that teaching kids that when they ask for feedback to be specific about the feedback they ask for translates into the working world. It's, it's such a critical skill, and we need to make sure that we're using it for both ourselves and for our students uh, in our classroom as well. Jeff, with all I that being said, Tricia, what's our well, shifted thought? Uh, our shifted thought today is really thinking about um, when we're talking to students about being communicators in today's world with all of the tools that we have. What are all of the different mentor texts that we can introduce them to when we're talking about a diagram? What are students thinking about? Are mm-hmm. they just envisioning one type of diagram? Um, you know, again, Jen's book 
gives students loads of different types of examples. And I think that's so important that we are pointing students to a big range of mentor texts. You know, if you are teaching the art and craft of the infographic, have students had access to looking at like dozens of different types of infographics? Because there's so many different ways to approach that, right? And no, it doesn't always have to be using computer software, computer programming. We can do amazing things in analog format as well. So making sure that students have had uh, access to that huge range. Um, So before we dig into the episode, I also want to remind folks, Jeff, that conversation about feedback, you and I harp on about it all the time. And I also want to point out getting better at feedback as an educator super important. And we also know educators are juggling so much. That is why we have a free guide entitled reframing feedback that has ready to use resources to help you set up better feedback loops in the classroom. So over there in the show notes, we'll be sure to link that in. If this conversation inspires you to think a little bit more about feedback processes, why they matter in your space, and you want to level up on that, uh, please do explore that free guide. Yeah. And I mean, if you go over to Shifting Schools and you just search for feedback, you're going to get all kinds of free guides. There's uh, Tyler Rablin's webinar that we did in our webinar all about get, all about feedback. You can actually, there's the uh, assessment, making assessment meaningful course, self-paced course that talks all about giving meaningful feedback to students that again, Tyler Rablin did for us. There's so many ways to be looking for feedback over at Shifting Schools. So if that's something you want to dig into, something you want to get better at, or you're just looking for some resources to support you supporting your kids, uh, head over there to our free guides, our webinars, podcast episodes, you name it. You're going to find feedback in a lot of different places. So we're excited to talk to Jen Christensen today. But before we get to that interview, here's a quick word from today's show sponsors. STEM sports is a great way to engage your students in STEM through sports-related activities. You're going to hear more about STEM sports in each of these episodes, and we also will have an interview with STEM sports CEO later on in the miniseries. Mackin and Mackin Maker is our other sponsor for the miniseries. Mackin is your one-stop shop for everything you need to get your makerspace up and running or resupply a makerspace you already have. You'll be hearing more about Mackin Maker in each episode and we'll have an interview with Mac and Maker lead educator as well. Please check out both our sponsors for this mini series on our offers page at shiftingschools.com/offers. A big thank you to both STEM Sports and Mackin for making this mini series possible. If you have used either STEM Sports or Mackin Maker in your classroom, shoot us an audio note and tell us how you use them in your classroom today. You can do that right on the front page of shiftingschools.com. All right. And with that, here is Jen Christensen, the author of Building Science Graphics, an illustrated guide to communicating science through diagrams and visualizations. I hope you enjoy this one. With that, on with the show. Hi, and welcome to the show, Jen Christensen, who is the author of the brand new book entitled Building Science Graphics, an Illustrated Guide to Communicating Science Through Diagrams and Visualizations. This is a practical guide as well as a textbook that bridges science communication, design, and storytelling. And initially, Jen, I have to tell you, I was like a little intimidated to start reading it. I thought it was going to be way above my head. I mean, you work with Scientific American, so I thought this was going to be um, you know, a, a really challenging book. And I found 
the description of it being practical, useful for anybody at their stage in thinking through diagrams, visualizations, and science communication. Um, it was like just perfectly positioned to inspire me as a reader. I'm wondering if you can talk to us about the origin for this book, when you began to really see a need for a resource like this. Yeah, well, thanks for those very kind words. Um, that was the hope. Um, I wanted to create a resource that would invite a lot of people in. And one of the reasons um, I, I wrote this um, is because over the last, I don't know, about one or two decades, I've been getting a lot of requests to talk with scientists, um, scientific illustrators, journalists, data visualization designers, people from all sorts of different disciplines that all kind of overlap in this weird area where they're trying to communicate science with visualizations, graphics, and then, you know, basically, basically imagery. Um, but a lot of these disciplines weren't talking to each other, and it's because their language and the, the way they speak and the tools that they use don't always overlap. So it felt like it would be a good idea to kind of create a resource that would that would exist at where all of these places do overlap and would be accessible to people across a really broad spectrum. Yeah, that that's awesome. I love that, you, you know, this idea that you you kept getting asked the same thing. You're like, look, there's a lot of people asking the same question. Why don't I create a resource that uh, supports them? I just love when we find those uh, pain points for people and for industries and, and find a way to, to support them. Uh, you've worked with, you know, National Geographic, Science America, McGraw-Hill, when it comes to engaging society with science, what are some of the obstacles facing today's science communicators and why is it important that we face those obstacles? So I think our biggest obstacle is breaking down this idea that science is some sort of elitist and intellectual venture. You know, so when in fact it's just a it's a methodology <laughs> that relies on collecting and analyzing evidence. Um, so it's slow, it's incremental, it's collective, and it's self-correcting. Um, and conclusions are rooted in evidence, but those interpretations may shift as additional evidence is collected. So sometimes like graphics that um, that we create about topics in science will later be outdated and some graphics might include to a nod to things that aren't very certain yet. And some parts of that puzzle might not be complete yet, but you know, some people are really uncomfortable with that, those areas of uncertainty and whatnot, or they mm. get suspicious when they're being told something that changes up a little bit later. So I think it's really important for us as science communicators to meet people where they are and to be as transparent as possible about what is known and why interpretations change over time. I really appreciate that. And, you know, part of uh, your book that really stuck with me is you were guiding folks who are thinking about, you know, designing work to really think about the needs of the audience. What's the most important information for the audience, not necessarily for you, the designer, and really just kind of pivoting away from what do I want to do as a designer and the recipients of this design work? What do they most need? You're a highly experienced science communicator, of course. I'm wondering, it's not always easy to do that, right? Um, you know, you've you've harnessed all these skills to let you design and and you know be a highly effective communicator. What's one big lesson that's helped you really learn? First, think about the audience. Well, it's a lesson I I learn over and over again, right? Because it's often tempting to fall into creating graphics for yourself. 
um, uh, you know, you're, you're solving a problem, mm. you'll probably solve it in a way that makes sense to you. Um, but I have amazing colleagues <laughs> that sometimes uh, check me on that. Um, I write about one of my favorite examples of that in the book in the introduction. Um, it was for an article on cosmic inflation for Scientific American. And it basically was for an article about how our universe changes over time. And so I was developing these graphics and I thought, you know, I'm going to apply these, these principles of graphical excellence that I learned from um, a really influential author by the name of Edward Tufte. Um, and one of his, his principles was, um, and I'm loosely quoting here, um, graphical excellence is that which gives the viewer the greatest number of ideas in the shortest time with the least ink in the smallest space. And so I sort of took that on as a personal challenge and I was trying to create these graphics that would like apply that principle to the utmost. So there wouldn't be any additional details. It would just be like just the exact number of shapes I needed. I would use as limited color palette as possible. Um, and my editor in chief uh, saw <laughs> the sketch and said, um, you know, that looks like a great start, but um, this doesn't really look like it's about space and our, and our, um, and our audience really loves articles about space. They want to see something that evokes that sense. Um, and she was right. You know, I, I was creating this graphic for myself and other designers to kind of say, you know, to show how the information can be organized in as spare a way as possible. But the end product was not inviting at all to an audience who wasn't kind of tuned into that as being the goal. Um, and they were flipping through a magazine wanting to read about space. Um, and so ultimately I hired an artist, Malcolm Godwin, who, um, who breathed some life into it and, uh, and added little universe and star imagery and, and really kind of brought it to life for an audience, um, other than myself. I think that's such an important point. Like as you were talking, I was like the amount of times where I've created stuff and given it to somebody else and they read it and they're like, I don't know what this means. And I'm just like, well, how do you not know what it means? This is exactly what it means. Cause it means something to me, right? I, it, for, I understand the subject. I know what I was trying to do, but obviously I wasn't communicating it in a way that others could receive it, you know? And I think that, that empathy piece of what does your audience need? What do you, you know, it was your personal goal to make this. That's great, but that's not what the audience needed, right? In that moment in time. And so uh, always remembering that I think is such a, a key piece in everything that we do. We'll get back to this great conversation in just a moment. But first, here's a word from today's show sponsors. If you're looking for a new, innovative way of engaging your students or children, look no further than STEM sports. Teachers, administrators, and coaches in every state are using STEM sports supplemental curriculum that combines the fun of sports with STEM learning to prepare them for future careers. From learning how football helmet technology can help protect players from damage to the brain to calculating basketball shooting percentages, the opportunities to learn while being physically active are endless. Sports kits come fully equipped with all of the relevant sports equipment and necessary science supplies, and no training is required for implementation. It's that easy to get your students excited about learning again while thinking about their future. Find out how you can kick off your STEM journey with your school, after-school program, or camp today by trying a free sample of your favorite sport using the link in the show notes below or visiting shiftingschools.com offers. That's STEM sports, engaging your students in fun, physically active STEM activities. And if you are looking for a one-stop spot for your makerspace needs, 
look no further than Mackenmaker. Mackin's Mackenmaker offers a collection of books, kits, and products to supply your maker space. Mackenmaker's engaging, high-quality products and custom-curated kits are the perfect way to support your current STEM and makerspace initiatives. Whether you are adding to your existing maker education program or creating one that's new, Mackenmaker offers hundreds of top-quality products. If you are just starting out and want to create a makerspace for your room or your team, check out the Mackenmaker recommendation list. Their lists include a mix of low-tech, high-tech, and no-tech options, great maker books to get you started, and excited projects to engage your students in both small and large group activities. They have curated lists for both elementary and secondary. It's the perfect resource, whether you're looking for high-tech Lego robotic kits or you're a librarian who wants to start a makerspace in your library. Not sure how to begin? The recommendation lists are a great place to start. With Mac and Maker, there is no need to try and gather resources for your makerspace from different distributors. Everything you need to get started is in one trusted spot. Mac and Maker even offers district-level service to provide an equitable makerspace program for every school in your district. Mackin and Mac and Maker are a leader in makerspace supplies for schools, and we thank them for being a sponsor of Shifting Schools and our STEM makerspace miniseries. Head to macinmaker.com or visit the link in our show notes to start building or resupplying your makerspace today. With access to 3.5 million print and digital fiction and nonfiction titles, Mackin, a trusted source for all your classroom school and library resources. And one of the things that is I, I thought was really cool is in, in part three of your book, the DIY section, you talk about the benefit of asking for feedback. And here on this podcast and everything we do in Shifting Schools, we talk about feedback loops and processes all the time on the show. How has your approach to asking for feedback and for processing feedback shifted throughout your career? Well, the biggest thing I've learned is to be direct with collaborators when it comes to what kind of feedback would be useful at a certain point or a particular point in the project. So um, now I don't just send sketches out and say, what do you think? You know, if I'm sending a sketch out and I know the aesthetics aren't developed mm. yet, so I don't want people being to be concerned about the color palette or whatnot, um, I really want to focus them on what would be useful and helpful and not waste their time too, because some things are still in development. So I'll ask, um, you know, do you have any feedback related to accuracy? here. You know, the aesthetics are going to change. The position of objects are going to change. I just need to make sure I'm getting the um, the main points correct. Um, so I'll ask really kind of specific questions at different stages of, of the process. And depending on who I'm asking the, the feedback from, if I'm asking a scientist for feedback, I'll ask them about accuracy. Where if I'm collaborating and talking with one of my colleagues about, mm. um, will this work um, on the printing press? I'll ask her for um, advice on color. Um, so it's just to be really super specific about what kind of feedback would be mm. useful at different points in time. That's Man, great. Trisha, that sounds so, so familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, we, we talk a lot about how, you know, tell me what you think about this is not a helpful question and really puts, you know, the other person who is going to be trying to offer feedback in a, such a tough, tough seat, right? Because, what is it that they want me to hear about? Like, I'm not focused in on anything. So that really specifying the questions and thinking about, you know, what what isn't going to be 
you know, possible to change and where do you really want to focus your energy is, is so important. Uh, Jen, I, I have to tell you, I really appreciated in the book how you also make a little bit more transparent the research process, because I think sometimes when we might be looking at, you know, incredible visual work, it's easy to fall into the trap of just like, wow, you know, the science communicator behind that just amazing. Like, you know, that, that came together so easily. They must just be so talented at doing that. And you talk a lot about uh, the research, the background research that goes into this and the, the many iterations. And I love what you had to say about your color coding strategy. It's practical. It's genius. So can you talk to the audience a little bit more about that strategy and why you mentioned in the book that you always have different color pens, highlighters when you're doing background research, because I think this is such a useful tip um, for, for students, learners of all ages. Yeah, I think um, I was one of those kids in school who would highlight everything and then I would like up my game and start to use different colored highlighters. And that kind of carried over to um, when I'm researching a project, um, there might be different um, themes that I'm trying to convey about a particular topic. So I'll start to use different colors, um, different colored highlighters or post-it notes, or if I'm taking notes in a, in a Google document or something, I'll use different colored font um, that are related to each of those different kind of sub themes. So then later I can kind of just look at my material and just organize it quite literally by color so that I'm grouping information that belongs together into one spot. Um, uh, so I might not end up using colors like that at all in the graphic, but it helps me sort of compartmentalize the different pieces of the story I'm trying to tell in a way that works really well for me because I, I, I'm a very visual person. So if I look at a document and I see like text blocks that are highlighted in three different colors, I know, okay, that's, that's going to be in the introduction. Let me move it over to where my reference material for the introduction is um, and just starts to kind of whittle things down into a, into a color-coded outline of sorts. I love that. And it reminds me, you know, like reverse engineering things is kind of a favorite activity that I do with learners. So it made me think about, you know, look at a great data visualization, you know, piece of evidence as sort of um, like an artifact and try to reverse engineer what was some of the research that you think that person did and even take on like that color coding, like what exactly about that research seemed to be really important to them when you look at the, the, the visual product. So again, I just, I really appreciate how practical the guidance is in this text. So, uh, and again, the opportunity for teachers to really be thinking in that interdisciplinary way of how does design art merge with science and why is it so important, again, as you say, that we're making science accessible, right? That we're not positioning it as just this elite thing where some understand it and some don't, but that serious issues that we're making sure that folks can really understand that, especially in today's attention economy where we're constantly flooded with a lot of news. How can you know images and, and visuals like this really break down some complicated issues so that folks have a grasp on what's going on and what they need to pay attention to? So um, again, the link to the book will be over there in the show notes. Anybody interested in design, uh, you know, again, fellow admirers of of science and STEM, this is what I would say, a, you know, a must-have book in your professional development library. So thanks so much, Jen, for your time today. 
Thanks for the kind words and for uh, the invitation to join you today. I'm really enjoying this conversation. So thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked the episode, please let us know on Twitter at Shifting Schools or Instagram and TikTok at Shifting Schools Pod. Make sure to check out our free STEM-related guides as well by visiting our free guides in the menu at ShiftingSchools.com. While you're at ShiftingSchools.com, check out our two new chat GPT-focused courses. Our five-day challenge is to support you in supporting teachers to play with chat GPT. Trisha's intersection of chat GPT and equity is focused on empowering conversations around generative AI tools through an equity lens. Of course, all podcast listeners can save $25 when they use the code SSPOD25 at checkout. Until next time, we'll see you on the network.